Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. This next set of four episodes will be unique. While they're not tied together by a single suspect, they are a series of major crimes that all occurred in a city of only 150,000 people and its nearby military base. A total of 27 murders over the course of three mass shootings and numerous other crimes will be covered during the next four episodes. As today's episode occurred off the military base, it will be covered separately with the following three episodes part of a three-part series covering the crimes at the old Fort Hood, now known as Fort Cavazos. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some nice True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The song, Deep in the Heart of Texas, has been sung by many different singers over the 80 years since it was first released. For many, the song captures the heart and soul of cowboy country, and if you look deep into the heart of Texas, you'll find the city of Killeen, Texas. If Texas was on a dartboard, Killeen would be just outside the bullseye. Located just 15 miles off Interstate 35, Killeen sits just an hour north of Austin or two hours south of Dallas and is one of the last cities before the wildlands of West Texas. The city was formed in 1881 with the construction of railroad lines that helped farmers from the lands to the west ship goods out of central Texas to the more settled lands of the eastern United States. With access to fresh water, the town had grown to around 1,300 residents by 1914 and would remain around that population until land west of town was designated for use as training grounds for troops preparing for World War II. The wartime boom helped fuel growth and prosperity, but much of the land used by the army during the war was farmland, and when the war ended, the town suffered a large recession from loss of war funds and little to no farming activity. But in 1950, politicians from the area were able to convince the U.S. Army to make the training center a full-time army post, with the previously named Camp Hood being designated Fort Hood that year. It was named after Confederate General Sam Hood and would keep that name until it was renamed Fort Cavazos in 2022. The Korean, Vietnam, Cold, and Middle East Wars have relied heavily on the armor and cavalry troops that were stationed and trained at the military installation. As a result, the base and the town supporting the base, including Killeen, have prospered over the last 70 plus years. In 1991, the population of Killeen had grown to roughly 67,000 people including a lot of military families, civilian contractors, and other residents that supported the nearby base. That year, a hate-filled man committed what was at the time the worst mass killing in U.S. history when he gunned down 23 people before killing himself in an act of malice and cowardice. This is the story of Luby's Massacre. 
George Pierre Hennard was born on October 15, 1956 in Sayre, Pennsylvania to an upper-class family. His father, Alan, was a surgeon and his mother raised George and his two younger siblings. Alan gained employment as a military surgeon and was transferred from base to base and so George was what was called an army brat. Despite the constant moving around, George was said to be an outgoing child and well-liked by his peers. Described as good-looking and confident, he did well in school until one event seemed to change everything. George and Alan got into a fight, likely something fueled by teenage rebellion during the height of the culture clash movement, and Alan took to physically assaulting George to put him in his place. Long hair was in style at the time, and Alan apparently took a butcher knife to George's hair. Classmates of George said that from the day he showed up at school with his hair chopped up and looking like he got beat to a pulp, he was never the same kid again. The switch from extrovert to introvert followed him through the rest of his high school days. He avoided his classmates and didn't seem to have any real friends, and he never went on any dates with his female classmates. He distanced himself from his parents, with some of his classmates telling People Magazine that his parents never did care and were hardly ever around. So in 1974, George did what a lot of teenage boys did. He enlisted for military service with the U.S. Navy. He served three years and was discharged and turned his experience in the Navy into a short career with the U.S. Merchant Marine. So we'll take a quick break here and kind of cover uh, George's life so far. Uh, it's difficult to say. I mean, I know according to People Magazine, this article that they did back in 1991, they talked to some classmates. Uh, they described this incident uh, potentially with his father as kind of this life-changing uh, moment in his life. And, and I get it. Uh, this was, again, a time period where it was the hippie days. This was long hair and and you know, a wild attitude, that was the style, and the popular kids in school, I'm sure, the, the popular guys, they all had the long hair and the kind of cavalier attitude towards everything, and and it, it's likely, with his father being in the military, we've seen this before, uh, if you even go back to uh, the Texas uh, Tower shooting, where Charles Whitman was raised under a very, very strict and accolade-based childhood. You had that time when we discussed it during the, the Texas Tower shooting episode where he was drinking and his father got upset and, and beat him to a pulp. And uh, it, it definitely sounds like this is a similar situation with... This definitely sounds like a similar situation with George's father, Alan putting George in his place. I don't know if it was something where typically uh, teenagers, whether it's girls or boys, will start to rebel. Um, I, I often, when I was a police officer dealing with family issues, uh, a lot of parents didn't understand their straight-laced kid turns into a teenager, and then they basically call the kid a monster. They won't listen to him, won't um, won't follow the rules, whatever it might be. And I, I try to explain it wasn't but less than a hundred years ago. And then for all of human history before then, that when people turned 13, 14, 15 years old, they would leave the house and they would go apprentice somewhere to learn a trade or, 
they'd go find a job somewhere making wage because they'd have to start a family young because life expectancy wasn't as long. And it's really only in the last hundred years that we've been keeping teenagers in the house and even though they're turning 18 we're still a lot of teenagers are living with their parents into their 20s and sometimes into their 30s uh, but definitely when that time period comes around where that 13 14 15 year old time period there's a lot of hormones involved there's a lot of they know better than their parents and causes these clashes within the family and if you're this straight-laced army surgeon that is used to following all the rules and used to running a pretty strict household and suddenly you've got this long-haired hippie kid with attitude in your house if you suddenly snap one day and go to chop his hair off with a butcher knife and beat the kid to a pulp you know it's going to obviously change the dynamics of the household of that that kid's life that thing in school i mean it's the equivalent of, you know, when I was in high school, it, was, it had a lot to do with, and I think it still does, but the clothes that you wear, the car that you drive, you know, your look in general. And if all of a sudden, you know, you're driving this $40,000 vehicle to school and you've got, you know, the, the best clothes, that kind of stuff, and then that overnight, your parents throw out all your clothes and, and, take away your car it's it's going to change your social status to some degree and you know some people can respond to that and others can't but it definitely sounds like it took its toll on george and i'm going to believe there was some also some mental health stuff going on as we're going to get into later on here that just may have come along with this incident either this incident I don't think this incident caused it, but I think this incident probably accelerated uh, some of the issues that George is going to run into as he gets older here. And then, as we're going to see, he's got this, and this is where I kind of base it on a lot of these teenage quote unquote rebels. They want to get away from the house as quickly as they can, um, even in these upper class or upper middle class families a lot of the times you know parents are willing to pay for college but then you're still living under parents rules so a lot of kids will join the military so they can get out on their own to experience the world to have some life experience back then you could get the gi bill i mean you still can but back then it was uh, considered a a great way to serve your country during a time of war and then get your GI Bill and then you could go off to college again on your own with college paid for and some money in the side so it was a stepping stone and we see this a lot with people who served whether it be during the Vietnam War or we're going to talk about some people who are serving in more recent conflicts uh, as we go on over the next couple days here but you know, George goes off to join the U.S. Navy. He serves his three years, and then he gets into this career with the U.S. Merchant Marine. And I'm not super familiar with the U.S. Merchant Marine. Um, from everything that I've seen, it's it's basically you're you're serving on ships. It's not a, a military service. It's more of almost like a, a labor union where you've got you know certain trades or, or stuff that you can offer to these long 
ship routes that you can serve as a crew on the ship and you have to have a license to do this you have to be part of this merchant marine it, it just basically makes it easier for these shipping companies to uh, properly crew their ships and that kind of stuff so he's going to go from take his experience in the navy and turn it into this career in the u.s merchant marine and he's going to start by working local jobs in the gulf of mexico uh, so he's just doing you know a couple week trips here and there just running between different uh, ports within the gulf of mexico and then he's going to turn that into a series of 37 overseas trips that started in 1981 and so these are going to be the hauling cargo from one side of the world to the other these are, are multi-month long trips where you're going to leave a port in the united states for a port uh, on the other side of the world and then also sail back and like i said he's going to do that 37 times uh, starting in 1981. But problems are going to start to mount as George was caught with marijuana in 1981. He was arrested and then the following year his merchant marine paperwork was suspended after he had a racial argument with a fellow sailor. He was living with several other merchant marine guys at the time and they told People Magazine that George was an extreme bigot. He had no problem telling others how much he hated anyone of color and homosexuals. George also harbored a deep hatred for women, often referring to them as snakes. So we're seeing him, he's involved in the drug scene now. He's caught with marijuana in 1981, and obviously the, the viewpoint of society today towards marijuana has lessened quite a bit uh, since the, the 1980s when it was deemed you know part of the war on drugs and, and now it's legalized in a lot of places but or I'm, I'm gonna guess that marijuana was not the only drug that he was doing and that's just gonna be based on what eventually the, the downward spiral that we're gonna see with George here it, it's it's likely that he was uh, probably involved especially because he's putting it in ports where much more hardcore drugs are going to be readily available in cheap ports in Southeast Asia and other places. Uh, and he likely experienced some of that when he was in the Navy during the Vietnam War. So even the only thing that's referenced in the story is that he's caught with marijuana a couple times. My guess is that he was also doing some other drugs uh, as well. And there was no explanation to where he learned this extreme bigotry it's possible, I, I know that during the uh, 60s and 70s, there was still a lot of racial tension within the military. It's, it's possible he may have picked up some of that bigotry during his time in the military. But a lot of the times too, when you, when you serve with somebody, if you hadn't been exposed to uh, minorities, you, you grew up in an all, Caucasian town or a mostly Caucasian town all the kids you went to school with were Caucasian a lot of these people that harbored some racist viewpoints when they served in the military especially if they were drafted and put into Vietnam they served with a lot of uh, people of color and a lot of the times they because they trained next to these guys they depended on these guys for their lives uh, they became friends with these guys it actually changed their viewpoints and they came out of the military much less racist than when they went in. But I guess at the same time, there's a possibility that, you know, if you get in with the wrong crowd, uh, you could either 
develop those viewpoints or exasperate your existing ones uh, by by hanging out with with racist or uh, bigot style guys in the military so again i didn't talk about if if he was this way before he went in the military if this was something that was taught in his home at at the time uh, if he was raised this way uh, if he the the few friends that he did hang out with before he kind of went into his introvert phase if they were uh, racist maybe there's a chance he developed these viewpoints early on in his life through that means but again all we know is that by the 1980s he's developed this pretty strong bigotry towards people of color homosexuals and this viewpoint towards women and george was said to get in a lot of verbal arguments with his mother over the phone and would later go on verbal tirades against women making all forms of derogatory remarks to anyone who would listen to him and so we're we're also seeing obviously some issues between him and his mother now he is going to live with his mother from time to time so it's it's clear that they could i guess somewhat get along but i think a lot if you go back to this high school days his mother was never really around or just didn't care didn't give him a lot of attention it it seems like you know he uses his mother as this somewhat of this verbal punching bag to get out his hate towards women and then when he gets in these arguments with mother that just furthers his his hatred And after eight years of transient life, George finished the last of 37 overseas contracts and left the Merchant Marine after his paperwork was suspended a second time for marijuana possession in 1989. After his father had finished his tour at Los Alamos, he had purchased a home in Belton near Killeen, Texas for tour duty at Fort Hood. Alan and his wife divorced in 1983 while George was with the Merchant Marine and his mother relocated to Henderson, Nevada. Having lost his employment, George spent two years moving from job to job, mostly performing day laborer jobs for construction companies from South Dakota all the way to Texas. And when he wasn't working, he would live with his mother in Nevada or his father in Texas. And it's said somewhere that he tried to get his merchant marine stuff reinstated during this time period. He wanted to get back into the merchant marine, but either because he had been suspended twice I think he had to get a letter of recommendation. He ended up requesting a couple of letters of recommendation from people, but they weren't willing to write them uh, in order for him to get his Merchant Marine paperwork back. So you know, he's kind of bouncing from job to job. And the thing with the, the Merchant Marine is your life's always changing. You don't have a, a central base and your job changes every few months. You're I mean, you're likely doing some of the same work on the ship. A lot of these guys were some form of mechanic or kind of a jack of all trades, and they'd get assigned to, you know, work on the machinery in the ship or work on the engines or whatever it might be. Um, but you're you're doing that for two, three months, and then you turn around and getting on another ship or returning on that ship to eventually then a month or two down the road get a contract with another ship and and so you're kind of living this transient lifestyle and and some people just get used to that and can't settle down so when george loses his merchant marine abilities 
he starts working these day laborer jobs. Well, and some of them are similar. That you know they might have they're building a large business complex, and it's going to take five months or something along those lines. And so he's going to pour concrete for five months for this company, and then his contracts up. They don't need him anymore if he doesn't have finishing skills or, or, or electrician's license or anything like that to do the the end work on the building he's going to have to go find another construction company that's hiring that has another project but he's going to do this for the two years while he's trying to get his merchant marine license back and in february of 1991 he purchased two handguns a glock 17 and a ruger p98 9 millimeter from a gun shop near his mother's house in nevada during the summer of 1991, the 30-year-old George started stalking two sisters who lived near his father in Belton, Texas. The women are 23 years old and 19 years old, and one day he delivered a five-page letter to them. The letter was mostly incoherent writing about wanting to date them with a request to do so at the same time, and then a lot of other writing that hinted at George suffering from some serious mental illness. And so remember, we we've talked about this in the past especially in like the unabomber case and that's going to come back up here later that some of this incoherent rambling it can be a sign of one of two things it could be damaged under the brain by hardcore drug use that basically interrupts the signals within the brain the capability of the brain to transfer coherent signals so some people who have Basically, if you remember, I guess the commercials from the 80s and 90s, and there'd be an egg, and it would say, this is your brain, and they crack it in a frying pan and say, this is your brain on drugs. What they're trying to say there is that when you do these hardcore drugs, you basically can fry out your brain and mess up these electrical signal receptors in your brain to the point that your thoughts can't form coherently. Uh, you often ramble in your speech, you ramble in your writing because you just can't get your thoughts to come together completely. So, and at the same time, that is a symptom of several mental health illnesses. So it's possible that it could be hardcore drug use, it could be a mental health illness because things like paranoid schizophrenia and that kind of stuff really comes on, especially in males, in their early to late 20s and it can get worse especially with hardcore drug use so it's one of those it could be one could be other could be a combination of both things going on here but by the time he's 30 in 1991 he's showing some signs of either brain damage or mental illness or both as he's stalking these much younger women writing unwanted letter to them requesting to date them at the same time and it's just not behavior you're going to see from somebody who's a typical clear-thinking 30-year-old person in august 1991 while grabbing breakfast at a convenience store in town george leaned over the counter while checking out and told the clerk i want you to tell everybody if they don't quit messing around my house something awful is going to happen So here we're seeing, again, those signs of that paranoid schizophrenia, the belief that everybody is out to get you, the belief that anything that happens is somehow affecting you, affecting your house, whatever it might be. And and sometimes people can live with this disease and be no threat to anybody else. But 
unfortunately what ends up happening a lot of times is they these people that suffer from the disease they build up what's going on to a boiling point uh, they everything they see convinces them that what they're thinking is right and it just becomes a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when you're able to turn every little event in your life into evidence that this grander belief of everybody's out to get you or people are messing with you or whatever it might be is true. I mean, I had a guy once when I was in law enforcement that he was a, a paranoid schizophrenic and he was he believed that the FBI was out to get him, uh, had something to do with taxes and he would claim that they they had switched from black vans to white vans because black vans were too obvious. And so then he would turn around and point to a white van driving by and say, that's one of them. And the problem is, is these white panel vans are used for just about everything. Painters, construction guys, uh, tradesmen, tradespeople. You know, everybody uses these big white cargo vans to drive around but he's seeing them everywhere and he's convinced himself that these are every time he sees one this is an fbi agent that's following him somewhere and because they're everywhere he's convinced himself that that they're they are everywhere coming to get him so when you've reached this level in your brain you've already convinced yourself of something then it's there's no checks and balances against it left where you're going to say hey maybe these are all just tradespeople doing their jobs driving around town no to, to there is no rationalization or justification or whatever it might be it just immediately jumps to everything that's going on is related to me so at the beginning of october of 1991 george showed up to work at a cement company in a town near belton and requested his remaining pay and advised the company he was quitting he made mention to a co-worker about how he had been wondering what would happen if he killed someone and made ominous suggestions about people giving him problems and to wait and see what he would do about it. And while sitting at home on October 15th, the evening of his 35th birthday, he was on the phone with his mother and watching TV when the news began covering the nomination of Justice Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. It was later said that George lost his mind over the phone while Anita Hill was testifying and his anger seemed to be directed to her. So I'm not sure if he was upset that a, a black man was being nominated for the Supreme Court or that a woman was allowed to testify against the nomination or both, but it was said he was irate and started screaming. So if, if you're not familiar, back in 1991, then first President Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court and it was it was a pretty big deal. Uh, Clarence Thomas is a black conservative and at kind of the last minute this Anita Hill was a, a co-worker that had served underneath Clarence Thomas at a couple different positions with the federal government and she came forward with accusations of sexual harassment and you know some saw it as kind of this last second uh, subterfuge by the Democrats to try to prevent a black conservative from getting to the Supreme Court. There was a lot of coverage of this going on because, again, it was it was a pretty major deal at the time. And then to throw in this potential scandal, you know, the media was was eating it up. So it was it was everywhere on the news at the time. So he's watching this on TV and he's talking to his mother on the phone, which 
normally upset him anyway and now he's he's very angry and again i couldn't tell if it was if it was because of clarence thomas's skin color going to the supreme court i don't know if it was because they were letting this woman testify about sexual harassment against a man again it's kind of everything that george doesn't like is happening on the tv so he's he's angry so the following day october 16th 1991 sometime before noon george grabbed the handguns he had bought in february and drove to colleen texas in his blue 1987 ford ranger pickup after arriving in the city he aimed his truck for the large front glass entrance of luby's cafeteria smashing through it at 12:39. and this luby's cafeteria i wasn't aware at the time we didn't have them up in minnesota but the, apparently they're a franchise chain of cafeterias so kind of i'm guessing up here we have denny's so it kind of sounds more like a a large denny's or like a large perkins i guess we have perkins up here too so it, it sounds like one of those franchise kind of chain restaurants that kind of caters with a pretty light grill menu usually focusing on it's kind of a breakfast and, and more of a, a light lunch type of menu and October 16th was the observed day for bosses day which is in my opinion a lightly followed day where employees thank their bosses but I would agree with most people saying it's mostly a hallmark holiday that shouldn't exist and <laughs> again that's just my own opinion it, it you know we've got I think every day of the year is something now, whether it's Sister's Day, Brother's Day, Boss's Day. You know, there's there's National Donut Day, National Ice Cream Day, whatever it might be. I think, like I said, every day on the calendar now has some designation to it. And and to me, I guess there are some great bosses out there, and I guess they don't really need their own day for you to, to thank them, but there's a lot of really bad bosses out there, and I can't imagine an employee having to you know take their boss out for lunch on a day if they're a terrible boss so again it's more of a hallmark holiday but due to this hallmark holiday a large number of guests had packed into the cafe for a work lunch with their boss it was estimated the cafe had about 150 staff and patrons all packed into standalone restaurant and so this is this is a building that has you know a parking lot surrounding it it's a restaurant and it has this large main entrance with two sets of three large windows on either side. It actually kind of looks almost more like some type of a office building or something like that, or like a medical building, because it actually had like a a covered entrance uh, as you pulled up a big, large, like what you would see at a hotel where you unload your luggage underneath um, the, the large protective roof that comes out. And so it, it, from the outside, it didn't, to me, it looked more like some type of a medical building or something like that. It, it didn't look like what I would typically consider a restaurant, but it's this brick building. It's got two, whatever you want to call them, bays of, of three windows on either side of, of the building. And he's going to drive his truck through one of these windows on the left side of the cafe and he began shooting from inside of his truck, fatally killing 48-year-old veterinarian Michael Griffith. George then exited the truck while shouting, All women of Colleen and Belton are vipers. This is what you've done to me and my family. This is what Bell County did to me. This is payback day. And then George opened fire on the patrons and staff with both handguns as he walked around the cafe and selected his targets. 
He would pick a victim, usually a female, and then call her a derogatory word for a female before shooting her. And so, again, there, there wasn't much in the research about any consequence that he had uh, during his time living here that, that would have precipitated this, this behavior, which leads me to believe either there wasn't any and everything that he thought that these women did to him and his family was all in his head, or what Bell County did to him. And it's possible maybe the, the marijuana possession, he got busted uh, each time that that occurred was in Bell County, which is the area of Colleen and Belton. And because of the, the marijuana arrests, he lost his merchant marine license. So I, I can see that being a precipitating factor. But again, these people in this bill, it's not like he's walking into the, the sheriff's office in Bell County and, and shooting it out with deputies because he's upset he got arrested for marijuana. It seemed like he obviously was trying to kill as many women in this cafeteria that he could, uh, and he's throwing out these accusations that they've done something to him and his family and, and that this was for payback. And, and again, it's what he said, but I couldn't find anything to back up any specific incidents that would have led him to to believe that anything that he's saying is true and in one instance he found a woman cowering at her table and he casually asked her if she was hiding from him before he fatally shot her not all of george's victims were female he shot one man steve ernst in the stomach before he approached a woman holding a baby in an unexpected moment of mercy he told the woman to take the baby and leave before he changed his mind and then george went back to selecting his victims shooting them once each before moving on to the next some of the shots were instantly fatal, and other shots would hit non-vital areas, allowing the victim to survive. As the rampage continued, some of the victims near the back of the cafe had barricaded themselves into the bathroom. Others, such as 28-year-old Tommy Vaughn, couldn't make it to the rear bathrooms, and as George approached Tommy's table, he threw himself through one of the large windows. The opening in the glass created an escape route for dozens of patrons. The scene inside the cafe was madness, with people shoving each other and trampling each other to make it out of the small opening in the window created when Tommy jumped through. Police began arriving on scene and had to contend with roughly 50 people who had escaped during the massacre and ascertain if the shooter was still alive. Meanwhile, George was inside and was trying to force his way into the bathrooms, but he couldn't defeat the makeshift barricade and soon found himself in a shootout with police officers. And this is something that people don't always take into account and this is whether it be a mass shooting uh, with a business uh, mass shooting at a school whatever it might be you've got all of these people running away from the building which is what you would expect to see but you have no way of knowing if any of those people are the shooter if there's multiple shooters is somebody pretending to be because in this chaos and this madness you're not gonna even if you're inside the the area where the shooters are active, you're not going to necessarily know what all the shooters look like, what they're all doing, and one could easily run outside this building. So police have to contend with the fact that all these people, these 50 people, some of them injured, are running outside, and they've still got to end the threat. And in this case, they're likely still hearing gunshots inside the cafe, so they're that is the threat and that's where they're going to go that's that's especially nowadays is what police officers are taught in an active shooter situation but again it just 
arriving on the scene a lot of times you see in movies you know these whether it's some type of a mass shooting or, or an action movie or whatever it might be this person will be in there there'll be like 10 people inside the the restaurant and they're all already already laying there injured or dead or whatever and it's just the one shooter and it's just this standoff moment between the the police and the shooter and what and, and it doesn't actually capture the chaos of these moments where you're going to have all these people running out of the building probably running up to you you don't know if they're a threat or not these police officers have to make thousands of split second decisions in, in the first 15 to 30 seconds that they arrive on scene what they're going to do who's a threat who's not a threat how can they help people is the th- is the threat still active it's just it's a lot for these officers responding to these these mass shootings so after locating george inside the responding officers give gave him a chance to surrender but he refused stating he was going to kill more people officers opened fire and struck george twice in the abdomen george realized he was out of ammunition for one gun and running low on bullets in his second weapon and not wanting to face what he had done he took the coward's way out by fatally shooting himself in the head with his final bullet as first responders triage the chaotic scene the final death toll was 23 innocent victims and george's own suicide the 23 murders that day was at the time the largest mass shooting on american soil eclipsing the previous mark of 22 killed in a mcdonald's in california in 1984. sadly it too would be surpassed in 2007 when a gunman at virginia tech took 32 innocent lives Officials were quick to believe George's motives for the killing revolved around his racist and misogynistic views. He was known to be belligerent and have an explosive temper, and the evenings of the night before may have pushed him mentally over the edge. It's likely he had been wanting to carry out the crime for several months and found the motivation to go through with it from the news segment he watched the evening before. But it's also likely there was some severe mental illness at play as well. As I mentioned before, his rambling letter to the two sisters that was delivered during the summer, as well as the comments he made to the gas station clerk, were clear signs of paranoia. And if you add that to his apparent social isolation that people started to notice in high school, you have the makings of a paranoid schizoaffective type of personality that is prone to anger, is socially isolated, and has poor interpersonal skills. And so we saw this with the Unabomber. He was diagnosed as paranoid schizoaffective. It's just somebody who has removed themselves from society and due to this mental illness, they, they just, they're angry at the world oftentimes uh, at a level that is accelerated well beyond where it should be just based on minor events that have happened to them. And it's because of this anger and this social isolation and, and everything working against them that they, they turn to violence as the as the response and there was a mixed political response to the shooting while many across the country called for stricter gun laws a texas democratic representative reversed his decision during the pre-planned vote for an anti-crime bill that was scheduled to take place on october 17 1991 and concealed carry of firearms was prohibited in texas at the time under the democratic governor ann richards but in response to the shooting a few years later republican governor and further and future president George W. Bush signed a concealed carry law. And many of the patrons of the cafe had guns in their vehicle in the parking lot, but carrying them actually on them was against the law, and several of them were professionals that could lose their license with a weapons crime violation. And so this is 
a lot of states before we had concealed carry. Uh, Minnesota was was a big one. Uh, You could, in some states, you could drive around with your weapons inside your vehicles. That's where you get the the pickup trucks, the gun racks out of Texas, and all that kind of stuff. You could you could outfit your vehicle with all types of guns, and and you could be kind of in this little mobile fortress. But if you wanted to go inside of a restaurant or inside of a movie theater or a mall. If you carried that gun inside there with you, you were committing a weapons crime violation. And again, if you were a professional, I think one of them in, in the building was a chiropractor, or one of them in the cafe. And if she was caught carrying her 357 revolver that she kept in her vehicle, if she was caught carrying that in her purse or on her person, uh, she'd lose her chiropractor's license. So there's a bunch of people that's that in that cafe that said hey if i could have been able to bring my gun into the cafe with me we could have stopped this because we see this quite often with with different mass shootings uh whether it be the aurora colorado movie theater shooting where uh, james holmes decided he was going to go into this movie theater and open fire on people these mass shooters they they don't want anybody shooting back at them. This is why they normally take their lives when police show up, is the last thing they want is to be injured. The last thing they want is for somebody to offer resistance to them. They want that power and that control of being the only person in the the building that can take somebody else's life. So they purposely go to places where people can't carry weapons. And, and this is why they don't go get in shootouts at police stations because that's there's a potential a that they could get shot and only injured and then they have to be held responsible for anybody that they killed or b they might not even be able to kill anybody before they're killed which is you know they're going for uh the glory of of killing as many people as they can so they go for the the quote-unquote easy or soft targets and that's places where people can't carry uh weapons and so again this brings up this two-sided debate that exists in america and i know in other countries uh things are way different whether it's england or different european countries and and, as well as australia and new zealand places where you can't or it's very difficult to uh, have access to a handgun or something that you can conceal it's just different in america gun opponents are strictly against more guns and therefore removing as many firearms as possible and oftentimes the argument is they want to remove they want to make owning certain firearms illegal they ultimately they wish they could make owning all firearms illegal and the problem with that is you get the gun supporters saying we already have guns they exist out there making them illegal is only going to take them away from the law-abiding citizens so the people who are like the chiropractor that are are not willing to risk going to jail or losing their job because they own this weapon they're going to give up their guns but the criminals that don't care they don't have jobs they don't care about losing a a license they don't care about going to jail they'll be the ones that are carrying the weapons that will commit the the robberies the mass shootings and they'll again everybody will be a soft target at that point because the law-abiding people aren't legally allowed to carry guns so it's, it's that whichever side of the argument you want to be on, there's no win. Um, and that's what we're seeing in America with, with gun control. 
And anti-gun people use these shootings to point out the dangers of guns in society, while pro-gun people will point to hundreds of incidents where legally carrying citizens have ended mass shootings, sometimes before anyone is killed. And this is really one of the difficult things about these mass shootings and the media coverage is as tragic as these events are they are used by the media and, and are used by politicians and anti-gun people to show the evil of gun ownership and and there are evils to gun ownership and what they won't show because a it's not as clickbait friendly uh, for the media and of course it doesn't forward the anti-gun people's agenda is to show in these situations where a legally carrying concealed carry citizen stops somebody with a knife or a gun before they or while they're taking innocent lives and they lower the, the death count there's a lot of incidents that i know of where a somebody legally carrying a firearm has has ended a what could have been a mass shooting or one of these incidents likely saved dozens of innocent lives but because the person carrying the weapon is killed before they actually are able to carry through their their plan you know there isn't the the big news story of 20 people killed or 12 people killed or eight people killed at you know this walmart or this restaurant or this school or this mall or whatever it might be because that that person's threat is stopped by somebody carrying a a concealed weapon legally before that that threat ever exists so for i'm guessing and again i'm going to just throw it out here for every one of these major mass shootings you've got several of these incidents where they're stopped before they begin because of somebody carrying a gun so you're going to have those pro-gun people saying well look at this if we take guns away from the the, the innocent people you're going to have actually have more mass shootings because these people committing these mass shootings, they don't care their ultimate goal is to kill as many people and then kill themselves they're not going to follow any gun control laws they're going to get their hands on these guns that exist that will still exist even after you make guns illegal and they're going to carry out these crimes without anything but law enforcement's response to stop them. And so, again, this is a debate that will likely exist as long as America exists. And is brought. And every time one of these incidents occurs, this argument's brought back to the forefront. And the Luby's Cafe was closed for five months after the shooting and reopened for the remainder of the 90s. And the cafe was shut down for good in 2000. And in 2006, a Chinese buffet called Yank Sing was opened in the building and it remains in business today. But that is the case of the Luby's Massacre. And join us for our continued coverage of crimes in the area when we cover two more mass shootings at the former Fort Hood, a sex crime investigation at the base, and the sad case of Vanessa Guillen. Thanks, guys, for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at truebluecrimeproductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon or PayPal at truebluecrimeproductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.